If you were writing the book of Samuel, you may have been tempted right at the end of chapter 20 to end the story there. I would remind you that it was essentially the high point for David. He had brought everything under his control. He had crushed not only the enemies around him, but he had even crushed the internal rebellion. He had even overcome a mutiny. He had essentially proven himself to be the king that everybody was looking for. If you were going to end his story as a biography, you would end it there. So it's perplexed Bible interpreters for a very long time as to why the author would go and add this section here at the very end of 2 Samuel. If you haven't yet done so, turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21, and we will wrap up the book today. Twelve messages through this amazing account, this historical record of King David. A section here at the end that appears to be just a random assortment of final episodes and details, and some of them not terribly favorable. The reason that the author has put this at the end of this particular book, I believe, is to cast an appropriate amount of doubt upon the reader. An intentional desire on the part of the author to make you, the reader, worried as to whether or not all of these promises that appear to being fulfilled in David really will hold. Because when you read this, you would be forgiven for doubting as to whether or not all of this was actually going to work. Instead of leaving David at the high point, instead of giving some wonderful example of how godly he was, the author intentionally wraps up this section with a comparison of the sins of Saul and the sins of David, with the battles that ensued because of this, and then right in the middle, a beautiful psalm of deliverance. And what I believe you as the reader are supposed to be thinking right now as we pick up this section is you're supposed to be thinking, man, if this was all dependent upon David, there's very little hope that this would work. But I know for a fact that God is going to make sure that in the end it all works out. And we come away not with a really elevated view of David, but with an elevated view of God's providence. In fact, if I could go so far as to say that it would be wise for us to adopt the same principle when we're dealing with anybody, any leader, any teacher, to not have a very high view of them and their humanity, but to only have a high view of God and choosing to use them for whatever purpose he does. But with that, we're going to see that this whole kingdom, this whole covenant is really something that may not stand. Is the covenant going to stand? That's the question that comes to us here in this section of 2 Samuel 21 through 24. And if you have your bulletins with you, you can open them and you can see a very simple outline for this morning. We're going to answer that question because we're going to see a covenant tested, a covenant remembered, and a covenant renewed. The covenant's going to be tested, it's going to be remembered, and it's going to be renewed. Please look down at 2 Samuel, beginning chapter 21 and verse 1. This is God's Word. 
Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of Yahweh. And Yahweh said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Pause right there for a moment. Dramatic scene, isn't it? We don't know exactly when in David's rule this was. These last few accounts are not given in chronological order, so don't be disturbed if you recognize that. This is an account, though, where the famine has come upon the land, and it was a three-year famine. That means three seasons without rain, which means three seasons without crops, which means three seasons without harvest, which means three years of people dying of starvation in the land of the covenant. And the way that the author puts it is three years, year after year. Hebrew didn't have exclamation marks. So the way that you knew something was very important is that it's repeated. So when, the he, when he says three years, year after year, you're meant to see the grinding poverty that was coming upon the people because you didn't have three years of goods stored up. And so David, now that he's matured, goes to Yahweh first to say, where is this coming from? You see, David is showing a bit of his theology here. David says, I know who brings the rain and I know who withholds it. Even in times of trouble, I know who is ultimately responsible. And so he goes to Yahweh and he, and he asks on behalf of his people, why this famine? And God responds to him, because of the blood guiltiness of Saul, because of the person who was in charge of the previous administration, because some of these curses that follow disobedience do have an effect on the next generation of leaders. Sometimes people will talk about generational sins as if somehow you could inherit a particular type of sin from your parents. That's not true, but you certainly can deal with the consequences of the sins of the previous generation. There are some people today who are suffering because of what their parents did, and they're innocent. And in some ways, these people were, were suffering for something that Saul did, and, and they're innocent, but Saul was guilty. And so David says, how do I settle this? And I believe that God must have revealed to him the way because he actually goes to the Gibeonites. You'll recall the Gibeonites were the ones who originally tricked Joshua into making a pact with them. Remember, they're the ones who pretended to be from far away. And I love the fact that there is this contrast. Right there in Joshua chapter 9, it says that when they came, they gave them the evidence. Look at our sandals. Look at our bread. It's all moldy. We came from far away. And it specifically says that Joshua did not consult the Lord. The author is saying that all Joshua had was evidence, and he made a judgment based on his own wisdom by looking at the evidence. And as a result, the Gibeonites were able to secure their protection within the covenant people of God, and though they became slaves, they still had to receive protection as part of the covenant that Joshua had made with them. Now Saul comes along and Saul breaks that covenant and you see there are punishments for covenant breaking. The issue is that a covenant's been broken. And David is not going to make the same mistake that Joshua did. David does consult the Lord and the Lord gives him the direction to go and so he brings the Gibeonites in and he says, what do I have to do to make this right? 
And the Gibeonites say, well, it's not a matter of silver and gold. You can't just pay us off. <laughs> there's nothing you can do to atone with money. And there's no reason for us to go to war against you. You're still a massive group compared to us. We're not going to win anyway. We're not going to go to war. And so they say, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll accept seven of the household of Saul, and we will run them through and impale them and hang them in front of our city in the hometown of Saul where he had taken up residence as a way of showing that you have acknowledged your guilt, the guilt of the Israelites. And David agrees. Because what David wants from the Gibeonites, from this pagan group of people that had deceived the Israelites into making an arrangement with them, he says in the text that I am looking for atonement and blessing. And the only way to get atonement is if there is death. And the only way to receive a blessing is if there is forgiveness. And so he goes about selecting who the victim shall be. And, go to verse 7, he says that of the seven sons that are going to be chosen from the household of Saul, he says that the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. Very important for you to see that in verse 7 because verse 8 may be confusing. Instead, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth. Now, you would think there would be enough names in Israel that you wouldn't have to use Mephibosheth twice. And it is confusing to the English reader, but that's the answer. No, Mephibosheth was not killed, the one that was promised protection. This is a different one. And he and his brother come from the concubine Rizpah that you might recall Abner was accused of having an affair with. And he takes those two sons, and he also takes, in verse 8, the five sons of Merab. And he gives these seven over into the hands of the Gibeonites. And verse 9 says, they hang them. They literally impale them. And they prop them up on the mountain before Yahweh. They do this as a sacrifice to the one true living God, to the God of the Israelites, to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And they put up these seven men as a perfect atonement for the sin that Saul committed against them. And they do it in order that Yahweh's holiness would be satisfied. But the dark drama of this text unfolds with this most chilling and disturbing part of the narrative. It's almost beyond description. But again, the Bible isn't shy about conveying the reality of the horrors of sin I want you to notice, verse 10, that Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it on the rock that was before these men who were hanging on the stakes. And from the beginning of harvest, which was in April, until the rain fell as a sign that atonement had been made and the famine was over five months later, she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. This grieving mother takes sackcloth, which was the sign that you were grieving, and she lays it out on the stone 
in front of the seven boys that are hanging up on the stakes. And five of them are the sons of one woman and two the sons of another. But she goes in order that she might defend even the bodies. She couldn't protect them from death. She couldn't protect them from being displayed. But maybe she could somehow protect them from being desecrated. Give them some kind of dignity. And so imagine all day long as the vultures were circling above, looking for an opportunity to come down upon those bodies. Or the ravens would come by to try to pluck out an eye. Or in the middle of the night when the animals would come up out of their burrows to try to to eat the flesh, she was there defending them that whole time. And if you're looking for some practical application, I don't have it. (laughs) But I think the author just wants you to acknowledge and experience the grief and horror of what's going on for a moment. Because that's real life. That really happened. That, that's what was going on here as a consequence of sin. Sin has very real, very gruesome, very lingering, very painful, very dark consequences. And that is an application we can draw. Beware, brothers and sisters, of taking sin lightly because even if you might not feel the consequences are great for you, the consequences are sometimes horrendous for somebody else. Here's a woman who watched five of her sons killed and another woman who watched two of her sons killed as a consequence. Will the covenant stand? There are consequences to breaking a covenant. Covenant breaking needs atonement, and with atonement, there will come blessing. David, when he hears about what this woman has done, goes and he gathers up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan. You'll remember they were buried at Jabesh Gilead because those brave men went all the way in order to rescue the bodies that were hanging on the wall in a very similar fashion. Those bones were gathered up. The bones of these men were gathered up and they were all placed together and they were put in the family burial ground where Saul and Jonathan were to be laid in the tomb of Kish, his father, verse 14 says. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land, and the rain comes again. Is the covenant going to stand? Well, it's being tested. It's being tested by sin, and God is showing that with the breaking of a covenant, there are consequences, but there is also mercy, there is also forgiveness, there is also grace. But it is also being tested by weakness. Look at verses 15 through 22 of chapter 21. This is the story of four giants that were slain. Let me give you their names so you can identify them. The first is in verse 16, Ishbi Benob. The second one is in verse 18, that's Saph. The third in verse 19, the brother of Goliath, that should say in your text. We know that from 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. And then the six-fingered man. It almost reads like a Hollywood movie, doesn't it? Especially the six-fingered man part. I can't help but notice six fingers on your right hand. I know someone who's been looking for you. But these were real. These were giants that were real. And I say that the covenant is being tested with respect to weakness because there's an amazing scene here. If you'll just drop down and notice it with me. 
It says in verse 15 that David was fighting and then David grew weary. David, the federal head. David, the representative of the covenant. David himself going out there to fight with his men and he gets simply worn out. He gets tired. And there's a scene where one of these giants comes upon him. And this giant carried a massive spear with a massive bronze spike on the end of it. And he was also carrying what my translation calls a new sword. In the Hebrew, it just says something new. We don't know what he was carrying. It was something new, something different. Here comes a giant with a massive spear and some new weapon. Basically, what you're supposed to see is that David is smaller, David is weaker, David is less armed, David is doomed. And this is the moment where you would think, well, maybe Yahweh's going to help David again, and he's going to reach into his pocket, pull out his sling, and take this guy out. But there is no evidence that that's happening. Is the covenant going to stand? Will this be the end of David? Well, thankfully, his nephew shows up and rescues him, but the men are not very happy with David. And so what they say to him in verse 17 is this, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. You, David, are the lamp of Israel. You're the federal representative. You are the one that all of these promises were given to. You are staying home next time we go to war. You're not going out because there is a point, brothers and sisters, where David can no longer safely go out because he represents too much of what is at stake in the covenant. And what I believe that God is revealing to us here is that though these humans are weak, that the covenant will still stand, that David will not be killed. He will, in the end, be spared. In our weakness, Paul says, we have strength. And that strength is both personal in that God will strengthen us according to his will, and it is also political. I want you to see that this is at war with the Philistines. Each of these giants represents in a very physical, visible way the power of the political forces that were around Israel, and it proves that God will be faithful to his covenant, that he will allow Israel to defeat her enemies in the land of Canaan. The covenant tested. Secondly, please notice a covenant remembered. Now, this is going to take us through almost all of chapter 22 and a good portion of chapter 23. In order for you to locate this more carefully, it comes from Psalm 18, or it became Psalm 18. Now, this whole long section that David gives to us, his song of deliverance, is Psalm 18. It's modified slightly for the people of Israel when they sing it. Obviously, we don't have time to go through it in all of its detail, but I will give you some broad headings. The first one is that of deliverance. Please notice in the first 20 verses, this is how it begins. Verse 2 says, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He then goes on to basically state that same thing over and over again the same way. God is the one who delivers. Lest you think somehow it was me and my power and my strength, Lest you think it was my skill and my wisdom, he says it is God who delivers, and it is always God who delivers, friends. He says it is his rock, his God, his refuge, his shield, his horn, his stronghold, his refuge. Do you get the point? (laughs) He's trying to say this in, in every way that he possibly can. He says, no, this is not something I have done. It is not something I've created. 
It is something God has done for me. And if I could make one application for us today, it would be simply this, that, that, that everything that appears to be a solution for you, just providentially, maybe physically, temporally, financially, whatever rescue comes to you, don't put all of your emphasis on the actual way in which you were rescued. Put all of your emphasis on the God who rescued you. You see, there might have been a refuge and a rock into which David could flee, but he doesn't give praise to the rock or to the refuge or to the cave. He doesn't give praise to the city. He gives praise to the God who gave him the city. He gives praise to the God who does it for him. It is his deliverance through providence. Now look at the next section, and that is righteousness, verses 21 through 25. I know if you read this in advance, you couldn't help but stumble over this section. I mean, we have just gone out of our way to prove that David is a sinner. But notice what David says about himself. Verse 21 through 25, Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Imagine if somebody were to say that to you. That person is obviously blessed. And you say to them, you are blessed. And they say to you, I know. And you say, why? And you say, because I'm just so righteous. I'm so holy. I'm, I don't know how else to put it. I'm just perfect. I am perfect. And God can't help but bless me because you know he only blesses people who are good and perfect. So I must be good and perfect. I must be righteous. How would you respond to that person? The same way that you'd respond to David when he says it here, you're saying something's wrong, something's missing, and you're right. Because David here is not talking about the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees had, which they thought earned them favor with God. He's talking about two particular righteousnesses, okay? And I'm going to give them to you very clearly if I can. Number one is a righteousness that meant faithfulness to God. So before we jump right ahead to the second righteousness, which I know you know is coming, let's not jump away from the text too soon. He sang this. The people sang this. We can't just pretend he didn't say it. There is a righteousness that is represented here by David, but it is not a moral righteousness in that he never sinned. It is a positional righteousness in that in the midst of his sin, he still kept going back to Yahweh for forgiveness. He never abandoned the covenant, never abandoned God, never became a pagan, never rejected Yahweh. He never went after the gods of the nations. That's what he's saying. He said, in that regard, I did actually remain faithful and true to Yahweh. And the only reason that there are blessings that are coming to me is because I did that. Had I moved away from Yahweh, we would have become a people who knew nothing but curses. Now, there's a second righteousness, and this is the one that we even know, and that is David, as a prophet, is speaking about the righteousness that comes to those who are converted, those who have had their hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh, those who are truly born again, regenerated. And that is a righteousness that we can claim. Not because of anything we've done, but a righteousness that we claim because we were given that righteousness by Christ. He earned it. Do you come into the presence of God blameless and with great joy, as Jude says? Yes or no? The answer is yes, I do. Can I really say that I come before God blameless? Yes. Not because I have 
not sinned, but because I have sinned. But that sin has been imputed to Christ and his righteousness has been imputed to me. So when we say this today, whether it's Psalm 18 or we read this, if we were to sing this, we can sing about a righteousness that we have, even though it is not a righteousness of our own. It was the same for David. There wasn't one method of salvation in the Old Testament and a different method of salvation in the New. There's only been one people of God and one way of salvation, and David is manifesting it. So it is a covenant remembered through deliverance, through righteousness, also through victory. Look at verses 26 and following. Again, over and over again, it is what God has done. You show yourself merciful. You make yourself seem torturous to those who don't respect you. You save the humble. To you I run against the troop. It is he who made my feet like the feet of a deer, verse 34. Everywhere we go throughout this section of the psalm, it is God who is doing the work. It is God who is delivering, God who brings victory, God who is proving his strength over the enemies. The last section is in verses 50 and 51, and we see worship. Look at that, verse 50 and 51. As this song draws to a close, he says, For this, for everything I've just mentioned, for your deliverance, for the righteousness you have given me, for the way that you fight my enemies and win my battles, for all of this I will praise you, Yahweh, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. You see, David wasn't really saying on account of his own righteousness God was faithful. He says that God is faithful to his anointed. God is faithful to his anointed. God chooses to anoint David, and then God is faithful to his anointing. He doesn't choose to anoint David because David is good and righteous, and then take that anointing away when David proves to be the sinner that he is. David understands that. And so he says the only reason that this kingdom is going to continue, the only reason the covenant remains in force, is because God is faithful to himself, even though I as a man am not faithful to God. There's only one anointed one who will be holy and perfect and sinless, and thereby not only maintain in covenant fellowship with the Father, but also earn the right to all of the blessings poured out upon somebody who is innocent, and that's Christ. And that's why we're going to look to that very soon when we get into the Gospel of Matthew. That's what all of this is pointing to. The whole story of David and all of 1 and 2 Samuel, it is all beginning to draw together, to funnel in together. The pressure is building, and it is going to launch us straight into an understanding of this fulfillment in Christ. So read all of this through that lens, because that's what the author intended. The covenant here being remembered through deliverance and righteousness and victory and worship. And then finally, just one more thought on this. Chapter 23, 1 through 7. We'll call this justice. It is the justice of God. And God's justice is exercised through David. And David now speaks as a prophet. Look down at verse 2, if you will. Your translation should have a capital S with the word spirit. The spirit of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that inspires Scripture, the Holy Spirit that brings prophetic utterances and words. 
has spoken to David. That's why he says it. Verse 2, the Spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. What I'm saying is, is God's Word to you right now as he writes it down. God speaks by me. His Word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The Rock of Israel has said to me. These are his words, right directly from God through David, the king prophet. And he says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he draws on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You see, these are all the good and wonderful things that come under the administration of godly leadership. It is like a bright, sunny morning. It is like the dew on the grass. It is sweet and good and refreshing. And where is this going to come? Is it going to come from David because David is just innocent? Because David is the ultimate king and ruler? Because David is just and fair and never does anything wrong? Of course not. He's looking forward to the one who will be that way. But it's only because of the covenant God makes. Look at verse 5. For it is not my house stand so with God, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men, there's a word again so often here in Samuel, the worthless ones are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire." See, he is saying that this promise given to him is the promise of an anointing and a family and a covenant and a name that will never be blotted out, not because of the righteousness of the kings, but because of the faithfulness of the one who makes the covenant. The covenant is being tested by sin and weakness. The covenant is being remembered through all of these psalms and poems. We are to take from this the fact that the covenant of God is the future hope for all peace and justice. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you hope for peace and justice in the world? We're going to sing a lot about it this time of year. I mean, think of how many songs are talking about peace. Peace on earth. Is peace on earth ever going to come simply from the efforts of man? Or is peace going to come after a war that brings to an end all sin and death and hell and all the principalities and powers of the air that we can't see and all of the unrighteousness is consumed, at that point there will be peace and there will be a, someone from the line of David sitting on the throne and there will be perfect justice. Let's be careful during these times not to put too much of our hope in reforming and certainly not redeeming this present world. We are not at war with this culture. We need to tell this culture it's going to be replaced one day with a perfect one when our king returns to establish all truth and justice. And the inauguration of that kingdom happened at his birth. The teaching of that kingdom is going to happen all through the gospel of Matthew. And the fulfillment of that kingdom will be there consummated at his return. The covenant has been tested. The covenant has been remembered now, number three, the covenant has been renewed. Look at chapter 23, verse 8, all the way to the end. Once again, I'm going to obviously scan over this section. It's mostly a list of names. Now, those names are important because they are recorded. They're important because the author wrote them down. 
but they are not necessarily what we're going to focus on today in this particular sermon. What you need to see here is that the covenant of God has been renewed, as it were, by giving us vivid depictions of His power working through people. These were the mighty men of David. He, during various times in his life, had to flee from Saul and had to flee from enemies and even had to flee from his own son. But by God's grace, he was always surrounded by certain men who were brave and loyal. We live in a culture that is becoming less and less appreciative of valor and of bravery and of sacrifice. A culture, in fact, that is growing increasingly suspicious of anybody that seems to demonstrate any kind of power. It used to be that power and authority was respected, and now it seems like everybody thinks that all power and all authority ought to be questioned. That everything a person is told to do ought to be filtered through their own perspective of whether or not they feel like that's really going to be good for them or whether it will match up with their intentions and their goals. The reality is that what we see as a picture in this text of is pure courage, loyalty, valor, bravery, and it's done so by depicting it among the mighty men of David, the warriors, the fighters, the ones who carried the sword. And so for those of you who can relate very closely to that today, and I know in our church there are many of you who can, many of you who currently serve in the armed forces, many of you who have in the past, may this be a day when the glory of that calling can be recovered and seen in a context that's appropriate and biblical. These men are called out for the eternal record for what they have done. There are three mighty men, the mightiest of the mighty men, and they're right here at the beginning. One of them was able to kill 800 with his spear at one time. The other fought so hard that as they gathered together for battle, he struck down 300 and everyone else came back just to strip the slain. Another, we don't know exactly how many he killed, but defended one plot of ground against an army. These were men who were doing mighty deeds and they were surrounding David. And there were others who weren't quite as noble as these. In fact, there were three other of the 30 chief men we see recorded in verse 13. We also see a very important example of what they did. We'll get to the rest of them in a moment, but of course your eyes should just focus in on this one key story, verse 13 through 17. And three of the thirty chief men went down, and they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Pharisees was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Let's just give you a little historical geographic context. The Philistines had come in right through the middle of the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. They had occupied this valley of Rephaim. It was during the harvest. They had strategically come in at a time when they could not only fight the people of Israel, but also destroy their hopes of being able to feed themselves because they would steal the harvest. This was one of those very low points in David's time as king. And David then was in the stronghold. He wasn't in the cities that were promised to him by God. And the garrison of the Philistines was at Bethlehem in David's hometown. Here's the picture, everybody. David is with his men. He's in the cave in Adullam. The, fair, the, the um, Philistines seem to be winning. They've come down into the valley. Maybe they've taken the crops already. They've begun killing the people. 
And they've already run a, a line right through the kingdom, now dividing it north and south. And David's own hometown of Bethlehem, which he wasn't even able to hold, is, under, is being occupied by these forces. And David says something really interesting. And he doesn't give it as a command, and he doesn't give it as, as an instruction. He almost says it to himself, but, but, but he's with his men, and, and maybe they're sitting around the campfire at night. And he says, oh, that I could have some of the, the water from the well in Bethlehem by the gate. Now let's just be clear for a moment. He's not saying that the water in Bethlehem was so great that I would love to have some water from there. Like this water here in Adullam, it's terrible. It's it's, it's hard water. It's not very good. It's terrible. I try to wash my hair. I can't get the shampoo out. Man, I wish I had some of that good water from Bethlehem. He's not saying that. Secondly, he's not saying, man, I'm so thirsty. I wish I had some water because we know that he was well stocked in that stronghold. What he is saying in this is very, very interesting. He is saying, I'm not even able to drink water from a well in my own hometown that God had promised me by covenant would be mine. That's how far away I am from the fulfillment of this covenant. That's how incongruent my life is right now. God has promised me all these good things, and I'm in a cave. He's promised me he'll do all these wonderful things through me, but I'm on the run. He has promised me a kingdom and a seat on the throne that is never going to end, but the only seat I have got is in a cave with a bunch of men who, as you know from the other accounts, were not the best of men. Many of them were destitute, depressed, or in debt. And so what David is saying here is that, oh, that I could have some example of God's covenant faithfulness to me. Now here's where the story gets interesting. Three men hear him say that. And I believe without getting permission, and I believe without consulting anybody else, they went out maybe that very night, and they made a raid on Bethlehem. It says they broke through the forces that were in Bethlehem. They fought their way in. It's not like this was a well five miles outside the city. This was the well, the main well at the city gate. If you've only got one gate for your city, and you've already occupied that city, where are you going to put the guards? At the gate. And this was where the heat of the battle was going to be. And they go in there and they break through the line. And two of them are fighting. Another guy lowers down a skin into that well and he pulls it out. And then they fight their way back out. And they go to David. And they say, here it is. David's, oh, that I could, turns into their, so we will. David had such a loyalty from his men that they were willing to go and they were willing to put their lives on the line in order to secure for him this water, this symbol of the covenant that God had made with him. And what does David do with it? Something shocking. Number one, he doesn't give them glory. He doesn't extol them in front of the other men. He doesn't even give himself glory by drinking it. Because in those days, kings and leaders of the army would have done such a thing. As a matter of fact, what he does is he takes that skin And he pours it out. Not because he wants to waste it, but because he wants to use it to worship. You see, what they brought him was a symbol of God's covenant. And what he is doing is he is pouring that out as a drink offering before the Lord, acknowledging that he has not lost faith in God's promise. He says, I'm not going to drink this because it's like drinking the blood of these men. 
He says, I'm not going to take this and give it to myself and glorify myself by saying, yes, it makes perfect sense that you would risk your life to get me this thing that I want. That's how modern leaders are. That's how human rulers act. You should count it a privilege to go and lay down your life for them. David says, I'm not going to do that. Your blood is in this cup. How different is that, though, than when Jesus was with his disciples around the table and he declares to them, it's my blood that's in this cup. And he says, drink of it. He says, you must drink of this. You must take part, as it were, in my death. Because of your sin, you are taking part in my death. I am dying for you. You see, they went to get water at the risk of their lives. Christ came at the cost of his life. David pours out the water because he isn't worthy to drink it. Christ passes around the cup to unworthy sinners and makes them drink it because only by drinking it will they have atonement. This covenantal promise that is made to David is fulfilled in Christ. And the water poured out by David as an act of worship becomes the cup consumed by sinners as an act of atonement because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Well, he carries on in the next section here to talk about many more men. He lists them by name. You can see them here beginning in verse 18 of chapter 23, and it's going to take us all the way to the end of the chapter. Most of these men you've never heard of before, and you're never going to hear of them again. But together, they do represent the fact that there will always be the devoted few that are willing to risk everything, not for glory and honor, and not even for their commanding officer, but for the glory of the promise of what God has said he will do for them. It would be impossible for us to skip over noticing the last name. Imagine, if you will, that you're the author of this book and you've written down all of these names and then you get to the last section after you talk about Garab, the Ithrite. Then you dip your pen into the ink and you write this, Uriah, the Hittite. You see, once again, forever enshrined in the eternal Word of God is the reminder that it was this man, one of the mighty men of David, one of the 30 choice warriors willing to lay down their life for their king. It was that man that David had killed. As one author put it, he had Uriah's blood on his hands and his wife in his bed. Isn't it good to know that the one to whom this covenant pointed will never fail us like that? The one to whom this points is the one who will never be guilty of adultery or murder. The one to whom this points is the perfect, holy king. Therefore, whatever is done in his name and for him, whatever sacrifices are made, whatever acts of valor are performed, are never going to be wasted and disappointed because they will always be seen as exactly what is appropriate for the Holy One who laid down his life for us. As much as we would love to see this end well for David, it doesn't because in chapter 24, we just have one last look. This covenant renewed not only by the devotion shown by some of these men, but also by atonement. That's what we have in chapter 24. 
Notice it begins with sin. Chapter 24, verse 1, again, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, this is difficult to understand. It would seem as though God himself was responsible for ordering David to do something that he then punished him for. We know from the parallel account in 1 Chronicles that it was Satan who instigated this. But let's not be quick to let ourselves off the hook. There's an apparent confusion here, maybe even a contradiction if you weren't believing that God's Word is inerrant. Who's responsible? Is David responsible? Is God responsible? Is Satan responsible? Well, this is something that theologians call the doctrine of compatibility. And what that means is that God in His perfect holiness and in His sovereignty can ordain every circumstance and every situation in this world and every moment of every person's life who would ever be born, live, and die. And at the same time, simultaneously, not be guilty and responsible for the decisions made by those individuals. You see, when God not only allows but ordains that evil be, it is because somehow through even evil, he says he is going to receive the glory. God would not create a world and ordain a providence that would somehow diminish him or his glory. It is only going to bring him glory. And so, well, I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't have a specific answer for exactly how that plays out. And I would suggest that you hold in low esteem anyone who tells you that they do have a specific answer for that and can explain it to you. Because his ways truly are beyond ours. His thoughts are beyond ours. It's like trying to explain to a child why it is that you don't run out into the street. If that child isn't able to fully comprehend all of the details of the risks of the circumstances surrounding that, they simply have to obey you because you understand and they don't. Infinitely greater is the gap between what God ordains and does in all of redemptive history and what we can fully appreciate and understand. So I hope that we can at least at that point take the text at face value not accuse God of wrong, and read it for what it says. So God in his providence ordained that David would go and count the people. Now, is that wrong? Is it wrong to have a census? Is it, a, is it immoral? You know how they do that once in a while? They send out that flyer to your mailbox, and you're supposed to fill it out. Do you write back on the thing, I will not fill this out, this is sin, and then quote this verse? No. It's not talking about that kind of census. What this is, is David sending Joab out. It took him nine months, or yeah, nine months, and over that, the text says, nine months and 20 days, I think, for him to go around with all of his men and do a census. They weren't just counting the people. They were looking for how many fighting men they could have. How much of an army could they muster? And between the northern tribes and the southern tribes, this text says they had 1.3 million. Interestingly enough, 1.3 million is the current standing army of the United States of America. Not army, I mean military forces. I just I corrected that. Don't, don't come after me. I make that mistake periodically. I mention one of the armed forces and the other guys come up and say, actually, don't say it that way. So 1.3 million is our fighting force right now of active duty. Same number in Israel. Now, why would David want to know that? He wanted to know that, some people think, because he was going to move from a voluntary army to a required army. Well, that would have taken all of the 
impulse out from voluntarily serving the king and would have made it compulsory. Others say that he was trying to figure out how many fighting people he had so that he could then go out and begin to expand the territory beyond what God had said he would give him. So he wanted to become somebody who was expanding the land of Israel and taking over more and more nations. Well, the reality is we don't know why he did it. But we do know that it was counted as a sin. And even Joab knew it was a bad idea, but David forced him. And so God responds in this way. After verse 10 of 24, David's heart struck him when he had numbered the people. David says to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, Yahweh, please take away my iniquity. I've done something that's very foolish. God accepts that, and he sends Gad, the prophet, in verse 13, and Gad says to him something fascinating. He basically says to David, guess what? You get to choose your punishment. Imagine if that came up as a recommendation in a Christian parenting book. Give your kid three options for punishment and see what they choose. In this case, three options were given to him, and he could have had either one, but wait, this, this is how it broke down. He said, you could have three years of famine, you could have three months when your enemies pursue you, or three days of pestilence. Without getting into all of the reasoning, most people believe he chose the third one for a specific reason. Three more years of famine would have put him all the more in debt of the nations around him, possibly losing control. If he was even for three months pursued by another nation, the kingdom again could topple. The only way to preserve control, to preserve the kingdom, was to accept the three days of pestilence, and that's what he does. And as a consequence, 70,000 people die. David's sin resulted in 70,000 of his own Israelite people dying. Now, I know we've talked about David's sin before. David's sin when he went out with a band of marauders and he killed the men, women, and children and stole all their belongings when he was living among the Philistines. And that was evil. But those were pagan nations. We talked about the fact that it was Uriah and some of his other men who suffered the consequences of his own efforts to cover up his sin with Bathsheba, but, but that was only a handful of men. This says that 70,000 people died, and they were all Israelites. This is the lowest point in David's life. How would you feel if you knew that your king was directly responsible for the death of 70,000 of your own people? Will the covenant stand? Will this be it? Is this the final straw? The last chapter for David? Is Yahweh going to revoke the covenant because he's shown us what kind of man David really is and in so doing shown us who we really are? The answer is no, because God is merciful. There's a scene here that is almost beyond comprehension. Verse 16 when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, Yahweh relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Was it the same angel as the one who was sent by God at Passover? Was it the same angel who slaughtered perhaps millions of firstborn sons in Egypt? 
Was it the same angel of death that was recruited now? This time later, we don't know. But this is a real angel doing a real deed. And this angel is moving about the nation, acting as an agent of God, through pestilence, killing people. And though it's invisible to us, that unseen realm, at this point in the story, it's like they pull back the curtain and you can see the angel. You can see the unseen realm. You can see that place that is not flesh and blood, but is the powers and principalities that Colossians 2 says we're truly at war with. And you peel it back, and, and, and what do you see? An angel And the angel has moved right up to this hilltop. It's called a threshing floor. It's where you would take the wheat and you would smash it with sticks and then you would put it into a big round saucer and you would throw it up into the air. And because you were on a hill, the wind would take away the chaff and the wheat would fall back into your basket. That's what it meant to thresh. And he's up there and he's threshing. And the angel comes along and God says, stop there. And he opens up David's eyes and David sees the angel right there on the threshing floor, stopped by God. This is the moment. This is the crisis. What are we going to do to put an end to this slaughter of the Israelites? And the answer comes to us in the last section of chapter 24. David spoke to Yahweh when the angel when he saw the angel who was striking the people and he said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. I deserve to die, not them. Do you see it? He's standing on the top of that hill. And there's the angel of death. And David says to Yahweh, the presence of that angel, Take me. I deserve to die. Will the covenant stand? It wasn't far from that hill that Christ was crucified on a different hill. And he also stays the hand that would come and crush every person who hasn't put their faith in Christ, every sinner worthy of that wrath. But he said, let me die for them, not because he had sinned, but because he hadn't sinned. He does what David does here, but it's the opposite. And while God should have killed David right there because he was guilty, he didn't. And though his son wasn't guilty, he did. Because David couldn't atone for the sins of the people. But Christ could atone for the sins of all who put their faith in him. Well, this brings us to a fascinating conclusion. David is approached by Gad the prophet again, and Gad says to him, Go up, arise. Rise an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor. Go up to that city in present-day Jerusalem on that hill where one day the temple would be built and you need to build an altar. 
This ends with the renewing of a covenant through atonement. This is the substitution. This is the cost. And David goes up according to the word of the prophet. And Aruna sees him coming up the hill. Remember, it's on a hill. He sees him coming up and David's men coming up. And this man bows before David. And he says, why are you here? And David says, I want to buy your threshing floor. And he says, you can have it. And he says, no. I'm not going to take something that won't cost me anything. He buys the field. He buys the oxen. He kills the oxen. He makes a burnt offering and a peace offering before the Lord. And there on that altar... The covenant is renewed. There on that altar, we're reminded of substitutionary atonement. There on that altar is peace made between God and man. There on that altar, at that place, the angel not only stops his ongoing destruction, but turns back. It was going to be that very place that David's son was going to build a temple. That David's son was going to build the place where people would go to be reminded that no human could ever pay the penalty that they deserve. And they would offer sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. Blood would roll down that hill for thousands of years, hundreds of years, until Christ came, the once and for all sacrifice, and his blood was spilled so that an animal sacrifice would never again have to be made. Well, this ends this book of First and Second Samuel. This ends with these words, And David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So Yahweh responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. But just because the plague was averted from Israel doesn't mean that all the promises had come to Israel. That is what you'll see at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And that is what we will see beginning next week. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for another compelling example of your providence working out in the lives of sinners. We thank you for what we've learned about King David I pray that we have had our estimation of him adjusted accordingly. Help us not to be holding him in too high regard. Help us also not to judge him too harshly, as there is nothing in him that is not in us in some way or another. Remind us that your covenant faithfulness is demonstrated in the sending of your Son, and that through him he would fulfill everything that you promised David's line would fulfill. I pray as we turn our attention from this old covenant expectation to the new covenant reality, that you would bear us along by your Spirit and you would open up our eyes and our minds to comprehend these fascinating truths, and that as a consequence of them, we would be able to glorify you even more in our lives as we seek to to serve you and honor you and obey you and be subject to you. Make us a people set apart, holy and righteous, not because of deeds we do or comparing ourselves to others, but because 
We are already made perfectly righteous and therefore desire to live lives of humble obedience and gratefulness to you for all that you've done for us in Christ because it's in his name that we pray and all God's people said.